LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Paul Levy, author of Dispelling Watico. Breaking the Curse of Evil. There is a contagious psycho-spiritual disease of the human soul, a parasite of the mind that is currently manifesting itself in the form of unprecedented conflicts and crises on a global scale. This collective psychosis or mental virus, which Native Americans have called Watiko, covertly operates through the unconscious blind spots in the human psyche rendering us oblivious to our own madness and compelling us to act against our own best interests. Watiko distorts our perceptions by stealth and subterfuge, acting through us while simultaneously remaining hidden. Unconstrained by conventional laws of time and space, this bug in the system deceives us by working with the projective tendencies of our mind to appear external to and other than ourselves. Thus, the conflicts and crises which threaten the collapse of political, social and economic systems and perhaps even of the biosphere itself are nothing less than a revelation of our own internal darkness, the side of our nature that we all too often deny. Quantum physics is now revealing to us the dreamlike nature of reality and, as with our dreams at night, events in the so-called waking world are symbolically reflecting a condition deep within the psyche of humanity. Drawing on insights from Jungian psychology, shamanism, alchemy, spiritual wisdom traditions, and personal experience, Levy shows us that hidden within the venom of Watiko is both a profound truth and an antidote, which once recognized can help us awaken and restore sanity to society. Whether Watiko destroys our species or catalyzes a deeper process of global awakening depends upon recognizing what it is revealing to us about ourselves. Hello and welcome, Paul, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm just really excited to be here. Excellent. Well, today, Paul, we're going to discuss uh, your work, uh, specifically some of the ideas in your book, um, which is called Dispelling Watiko, subtitled Breaking the Curse of Evil. Now, in this modern age, um, it occurs to me that the concept of evil seems to most people to be a little bit abstract, maybe even old-fashioned. Certainly people do bad things, but the idea of evil seems almost medieval, uh, going back to, you know, that which cannot be named. So perhaps you could just address um, what what Watiko is and how that fits in with this um, archetypal idea of evil. Sure. And um, I guess I'll start by saying the word Watiko, it's a Native American term that um, really... Uh, in their cosmology, it pointed to the spirit of evil. And, you know, I'm not talking as, as a metaphysical person, like, um, you know, in a, in a sort of like a theological sense. I'm talking about psychological evil that we all experience, whether it be in our personal life or, you know, as it plays out in the greater body politic. And from that point of view, there's no getting around that we have to come to terms with evil because it's playing out in our world. And um, so I'm actually, what I've done is um, by studying the indigenous uh, conception of evil, uh, particularly the Native American in their term, Watiko, I've, I've catapulted from that based on my own experience and my own studies of different wisdom traditions and trying to really um, bring out and shed light on what is this thing called evil because we clearly have to come to terms with it. We just can't be an ostrich and put our head in the sand. 
because it's destroying us. And so what the book is about, it's really, an, you know, it's an in-depth contemplation, just flooding as much light as I can imagine on what is the nature of this thing we call evil. You mentioned um, indigenous people there and um, their knowledge. Now, of course, a lot of um, ancient sort of tribal societies um, could be quite barbarous and quite brutal. But in general, there does seem to be it does seem to be the case that indigenous societies um, have got some sort of access to ancient wisdom. They seem to be in touch with something that we've lost. Yeah, that's that that's very true. And so, you know, what what the indigenous people call Watiko, it's actually a psycho-spiritual disease of the soul that exists in the collective unconscious of humanity. So that's to say that it exists, that its origin is the psyche and that we all potentially can fall prey to it. And, and it operates through the blind spots in our psyche, so through our unconsciousness, in such a way that it compels us to act it out, but in such a way that we don't see it. And so um, this thing called Watiko, it's so interesting because it works through the projective tendencies of the mind, because we're always projecting. Because think about what is a projection. It's like a dream. We're connecting the dots on the ink blot to actually superimpose this meaning pattern and create our experience. And we're all doing that 24-7, whether it's in the night dreams or the waking dream. And what Watiko does, it actually kind of hooks in to this propensity in our mind to project in a way that we then unwittingly become the conduit for it to act itself out in the world. And so the thing about Watiko is that it's an inner disease of the soul, you know, whose origin is the psyche, and it's non-local, which is to say that we all have it in potential, or at any moment we all could fall prey to it. And that's really, really important. But being non-local, which is a physics term, which has to do with that it's it's not bound by the third dimensional space and time of the physical world we live in. What that means is that though it's an inner disease of the soul, of the mind, of the psyche, like a mind parasite, like a virus, like a tapeworm, it actually expresses itself non-locally in a synchronistic fashion through the medium of the outside world. It's as if it extends itself out into the world and configures seemingly outer events so as to express an inner condition of us, of, of ourselves. Now, we live in a very materialistic, reductionistic times, and people always look for physical evidence of things. And this being in the realm of the psyche uh, or the mind, or I mean, it's, a lot of people then are going to struggle and say, well, what's the evidence for this? And of course, you would point to, as you said earlier on, this is playing itself out in the world in terms of we're destroying ourselves and the, the, the environment that supports us. But people still always looking for very direct causal links. And that's just not how this works. And you mentioned non-locality. Um, I don't know how many people are familiar with some of the basic concepts of quantum physics. But if we look there, you find that there's lots of other non-local phenomena. And this is not some kind of voodoo we're talking about here. Yeah, no, that's very, very true. I mean, think about one of the key things that's been proven from quantum physics. It's what's called the observer effect. And that is to say that the act of observation actually evokes the universe that's observed. And what that means is that it makes no sense whatsoever to talk about an, an objective world separate from an observer in the same way that it makes no sense at all to talk about an observer as separate from the universe, that the observer is the observed, that the way we actually perceive or dream up um, this world is the you know is not is is inseparable from the way it manifests, and so that means that somehow our act of observation is somehow influencing the world we're observing. What I'm describing. That's exactly like a dream, because if when you're in a night dream and inside that dream, if you change your perception of the dream, the dream has no choice but to spontaneously shapeshift and reflect back your change in perspective, because the dream is nothing other than your own mind. 
in the same way, quantum physics has actually really shown that. So this isn't just something, you know, what I'm talking about with Watiko and its non-locality, this isn't just something I'm asking anybody to, you know, take as an article of faith. It reminds me of like when, when the Buddha himself, and the word Buddha means, you know, the one who is awakened to the dreamlike nature. When he was asked about his teachings, he said, look, don't take my word for it. Do the experiment yourself. Look inside your own mind. Be an empiricist. That's all that I'm asking is that when you actually really contemplate into the present moment nature of your experience and you begin to track, you know, your own, the workings of your own mind and you begin to see the way the shadow operates out in the world and how that's actually a non-local reflection of your own darkness, that's something that's not just a belief or a, or a thought form. You actually have an experience that will show you that beyond any doubt whatsoever. Now, the title of your previous book, which was The Madness of George W. Bush, that does that more than hints at what we're really talking about here in terms of the scale of it. And we do, many of us, everyone I know, certainly we look at people on the world stage, global leaders, whether uh, political or corporate, whatever it happens to be, military. And we really feel that these are uh, creatures that are somehow not like us because they just seem to be fundamentally so different in their motivations and actions. And I certainly remember right from being a child, standing quite often looking at groups of adults or people in the street or things happening on the TV screen and just going, these people are insane. Yeah, no, sure. That That's a really good point because like with my first book about, about, about Bush, what I was pointing at, you see, the whole point of view that I'm contemplating um, things is from the point of view of that we're having a mass shared dream right now. And when you're in a dream and you have the recognition of your situation, which is to say that you're inside of a dream, well, there's it's all your own energy. It's all your own reflection. So from that point of view... I was contemplating, here's Bush, you know, in my first book, he was this dream character in all of our dream, which is to say he was an embodied reflection or aspect of ourselves. So if we think of him as being crazy or evil in a way that he's separate from us, by having that point of view, that's feeding the polarization in the field, and that feeds Watiko that actually is unwittingly feeding the very, you know, evil that we're actually reacting against. And But when we recognize, oh, wow, this evil or insanity that I'm seeing in Bush or whoever, it's an actual reflection of my own darkness. I mean, here's a dream character. Here's that part of me that I've dreamed up into materialized form to actually see it in front of my very eyes. And if I recognize that's that part of me, then all of a sudden I'm beginning to wake up and I'm also beginning to connect with the part of me that um, has compassion. So you see, that's the way, um, you know, to actually hold in a way what I'm pointing at is that there's a, there's this deeper way of really framing our experience that can actually in a way dispel, you know, like I say in my subtitle of my new book, it, it helps to break the curse of evil. And part of that has to do with really seeing that the evil we're seeing out there, that not only is it is a reflection of a part of our own evil, but we're actually complicit in its manifestation in the sense that we're all dreaming it up um, in a collaborative way together. I've read quite a bit about psychopathic tendencies in human beings and psychopathic behavior and how it manifests itself and what the origin might be. And there seems to be sort of a link, certainly a lot of what you're writing about rang how can I put it, psychopathic bells in my mind? Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, in, in other words, you know, there is um, the thing about about the Watiko virus. So think about it. It's like a parasite of the mind. And like I was saying, it operates through the blind spot. And so it's a form of this of a psychic blindness that not only does it have a belief that it's sighted, but it arrogantly has a belief that it's more sighted than anyone else. And because of that, it plays on the tendency in ourselves to deceive ourselves. We all have that propensity to fall under, to, to lie and believe our own lies, and then to be in denial and to be in denial that we're in denial. And it becomes a self-perpetuating feedback loop 
And then when we really get established in the MO of, of not looking, which is the blindness, the psychic blindness that I'm, I'm talking about, that all of a sudden becomes pathological. And then we unwittingly become an instrument for the negative aspect for the evil of it, for the pathological aspect of it to incarnate itself through us. We become in a way the portal through which this pathology, then it becomes sort of like this a malevolent bug that we become the instrument for its incarnation into the third dimension. And people who are taken over by it, who are literally possessed by it, you know, and are completely unconscious of it, um, they, you know, one other way of describing them is that you could say, well, they're sociopaths or psychopaths, and that's true. And But one of the deeper points that I, that I come to in my book, and it's really important to say this, is that encoded in this virus, in the Watiko virus, that from the ultimate sense doesn't even actually exist because it doesn't have any existence separate from our own mind, and yet it has no existence, ultimately speaking, at all, and yet it can destroy our species, okay? Now, that's pointing at something. That's pointing at the incredible intrinsic power that all of us have. And But what I point at is that encoded in the evil of Watiko. So here it is, it's destroying us. I mean, think about it, we're destroying each other, we're in continual war, we're destroying the biosphere, the life support system of the planet, and yet encoded in Watiko, it's potentially showing us something about ourselves. And when I unfold that, what it's showing us, it potentially can help us to wake up to the dreamlike nature of our situation, which is to say, it can help us to just wake up to who we are. And so the thing about Watiko, it's like, it's a very quantum phenomenon. And when I say quantum, I mean just like light. Well, is light a wave or a particle? Well, it depends how you observe it. The same way with Watiko. Is it destroying our species and is it the greatest evil? Or is it helping us to wake up? It depends how we dream it. It depends if we recognize what it's revealing to us. You mentioned um, projecting our shadow and cautioning against doing that and this makes me think of the reactions that I see and I certainly would have been much more inclined to react like this in the past I've tried I'm trying to become conscious of it now and to keep it in check is that when we see um, outrageous things happening in the world around us there's a lot of talk at the minute I mean tremendous political and economic and and uh, upheaval in, in right across the western world industrialized world and there's all the usual conflict intractable long-term conflicts all over the place and i'm constantly seeing you know for example online social media people say you know these bastards must hang and we need a revolution and this bastard should be strung up and and i keep thinking that's part of that energy isn't it and that's not how we should be reacting to this and it's, it's very tempting to it's a knee-jerk it's a it seems to be the to, to be a just thing to do but it, it isn't ultimately yeah, no, that's that's really true. I mean, on the one hand, people who are, you know, who are actually perpetrating evil, they need to be held accountable. I mean, so it's not to say that they don't. But, you see, one of the ways that Watika works, when I was saying it works through the blind spot, um, from the psychological point of view, it works through the projection of the shadow, and the shadow is our own darkness. And, you know, it has, it also can be the, the part of us that's brilliant and light, and if we're not connecting with that, we're going to project out our own light too, but I'm more talking about the real inferior parts, the parts we're ashamed of in ourselves, um, you know, sort of like the parts of us that are just the darker parts to the extent that we don't really own those or have relationship with those, then what happens? We split them off, we project them outside of ourselves, and then onto some person or group or country who will carry the shadow, who will embody the shadow. And and then, you know, and one way to understand how this works, if you're in a dream, in a night dream, and if you split off from your own darkness, well, and the night dream is just your own energy, it's your own, or it's a reflection of your own inner process. And if you split off from your own darkness, what's going to happen? Into the dream will walk a dream character, an aspect of yourself who's embodying your split off projected darkness. And then you have evidence that the darkness really is out there, so that even more gives you justification to become more fixed in your point of view that the evil exists outside of yourself, so you help, you hold that point of view of projecting the shadow even more, and the more you hold that point of view, the more then that person 
will provide the evidence because they're embodying the shadow and it becomes a self-fulfilling feedback loop. And of course, not only are you projecting the shadow on them, but in all probability, they're doing the same for you, to you. And then you're both reciprocally projecting the shadow on each other. And, and that's really at the basis. That's the underlying psychological dynamic that informs and underlies wars. And so, because what will happen, then when you see the darkness outside of yourself embodied, you know, through someone, you typically try to destroy that because that's a reflection of the initial inner process in ourselves of trying to destroy our own darkness. But by trying to kill the evil out there, we unwittingly become possessed by the very evil we're trying to destroy. And it's just what I'm describing is insanity. And this is what he called, this is a way of, act, you know, uh, infinite ways of articulating how the Watiko virus works. What I've just been trying to articulate is from the psychological point point of view is one of the ways of really describing it in language. Now, there seems to be a link here to the notion of the fall of humanity, sometimes embodied in the Garden of Eden story. Um, but also, if you read um, a lot of uh, alternative history and ancient history, two ev events of maybe 10 to 12,000 years ago when there was perhaps a cataclysm or a series of cataclysms. Yeah, no, I think that there's something, there's, there's definitely a link there. The way I see it, and I talk about this in the book, is that um, our species certainly seems to be suffering from a form of trauma. You know, it has like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and wh whether that trauma happened, you know, thousands of years ago or whatever, the point being, I feel it's the most important point is that that process of trauma is a process that's happening in the present moment that we're participating in, in a sense, recreating our own trauma. And um, because the way trauma works is really interesting because when we become in trauma and, key, and think about it, typically what will happen in a trauma, some overwhelming event that will happen that we're not able to integrate in our typical way. And so then it develop, it becomes like a split off part of our wholeness developing a seeming autonomy or independence. And it's interesting, psychologically, this is called an autonomous complex. And um, the indigenous people would call, call autonomous complexes, they would refer to them as being demons. And so the thing about trauma, we then split off a part of our wholeness. It develops an autonomy, a seemingly independent life or will of its own. And the way we try to heal from the trauma is the very thing that creates the trauma we, we're trying to heal from in just an, another form of that self-perpetuating feedback loop with no exit strategy. So in a sense, that's another way of describing Watiko, and that's another way of describing our present-day situation. Now, the thing you see, the, the thing about this is that what these demons can't stand or these autonomous complexes or, you know, trauma what it can't stand is to actually be seen and to actually have the light of consciousness flood on it in the same way that like if you have any sort of a vampire you know in the myth when the sun comes up it loses its power and has to go back into you know its coffin or hiding or whatever in the same way that when we add the light of consciousness to the split off parts whether you call it watiko demon autonomous complexes trauma whatever it, it takes away both its omnipotence and its autonomy. And that's why, you see, so Watiko, it works through the unconscious, through the, you know, the psyche, through, in the, through the, via the collective unconsciousness uh, of, of our species. And yet it's through consciousness, it's through cultivating awareness and the compassion, that's the energetic signature of awareness, that actually dispels um, the actual pernicious negative effect of whatever we're calling it. Watiko, demon, trauma, autonomous complex, whatever. Now, this need to remain hidden uh, in the everyday, or in our everyday lives, it manifests itself in that we look out at the obvious insanity in the world, uh, current events, and the the current state of the human condition, and we normalize it to the point where quite often don't even discuss it. I mean, you and I are discussing it, of course, but generally it's not discussed, and we can't say what we see. You can look on the TV screen and see something that any sane person would go, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a, a massacre, um, completely unjustified. Those people were innocent. But there's an, a way of 
justifying that it takes place in the mainstream and the political sphere is that's, I mean, a palpable nonsense. I mean, just completely, completely see through. You wouldn't stand up in court. But we all collectively, most of us, enough of us accept it as, as the case, as true, as real. And then we go forward with it. Yeah, no, that's very true. Well, one thing to understand, and I think more and more people are understanding this, is that the mainstream media is, in a sense, the prop the propaganda like sort of organ of the powers that be. So you could say that's one of the main channels of the propagation of the Watiko virus through the field is through you know the mainstream media, and it's important to understand we're in the middle of a, of a collective psychosis. And what Watiko is, it's a collective psychosis. And so here we are in the midst of this psychic epidemic, and it's so pervasive that it just appears like it's normal. It just appears that, oh yeah, gov our government always is lying to us. We're always in a state of continual war. We're destroying each other, the biosphere. And that's just normal and there's nothing we can do about it. And we're not even talking about it. That is an expression of the extent of our collective insanity. And um, so that's why when any of us really have any form of awakening or lucidity, um, we, in a sense, are the, the um, these antipsychotic agents in the greater field. And um, But I think it's a really important thought form to offer up and to put out that, you know, it's like we're on the Titanic and it's sinking and we're just rearranging the deck chairs, you know? And it's really, really important um, to, you know, like one of the things I do in my book, I talk about the importance of like, of like finding the name and, and like having language for stuff and the power of the word. And when we name something, whether it's like calling the, the collective psychosis that we're in by its proper name or by, you know, calling the name Watiko, um, just like in mythology, when there's a demon, when you find the name of the demon, and it can't just be any name, it has to be the right name, the proper name of the demon, it takes away its power. Because when you find the name of something, all of a sudden, you've added consciousness to this thing, to this entity, that until you find the name, it can operate in the shadows, it can operate in the unconscious, and it can act itself out through our unawareness. But as soon as you find the name, then there's a sense of you have a knowingness of what that entity is, and then it no longer not only has power over you, but you then have power over it. Now, this following point applies to uh, individuals right across, uh, shall we call it, the spectrum of awakening, and that we can say that we have no part in this collective insanity, and we are, in fact, apart from it, uh, certainly from the overt manifestations of evil, but we may still be playing our part in all of this, and uh, you raise the specter of so-called enablers. And these are basically like the people in Nazi Germany who were just following orders. Yeah, that's a, that's a totally good point in the sense that what's happening here, we're in the middle of a collective psychosis and all this evil is being perpetrated and we are all dreaming it up together. We're all enablers. We're all complicit to the extent that we're unaware of what's happening or that we're in avoidance of, of looking at our own darkness. You see the Watiko bug, to the extent that we have the avoidance of really seeing our own darkness, that's the portal through which it comes into our mind and then we become its unwitting instrument. So yeah, that's really um, just an incredibly um, an important point uh, to, to, you know, to really understand. Now you mentioned the mainstream media basically being the you know organ for the uh, for, for government, um, but this uh, Watiko, whatever we wish to call it, uh, becoming more institutionalized. It has been for some time, but certainly that's the the history of industrial society in the the twenty twentieth century and the, this part of the twenty first century. It doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon. Right across government, the corporate world, and the media. Uh, we're kept in a constant state of fear, consciously and subconsciously, and daily events seem to be one draining and disempowering distraction after another. Yeah, no, that's that's true, and that's by design. And, um, you know, the Watiko bug, it feeds on fear, you know, and fear is an expression when there's self and other. All of a sudden, there's like a fact of otherness 
the expression of that is fear, where if we recognized, oh, that we're all interconnected and interdependent, well, the expression of that is compassion. There's no fear when there's compassion. Now, just just one thing to go back to, because you had mentioned like the good Germans and, you know, during World War II who were supporting Hitler, and yet they were unwittingly the instruments for evil. That's a perfect example of how Watiko works, because to the extent that somebody in a position of power, and if they're, you know, channeling, you know, whether we call it Watiko or evil or unconsciousness or the power drive of the shadow, and if we don't see that and unwittingly or wittingly follow them and support them, you know, because of whatever is going on inside of us, we then become these these non-local agents that help the disease to propagate in the same way that those good Germans who were just following orders or thought Hitler was a good man out for their, you know, for their best interests, they actually unwittingly become the instruments through which, you know, the Watiko virus was propagating itself in Nazi Germany. So I think that that's a really good model and image to understand what I'm pointing at. And also two of the great arms of this uh, system are the consumer culture, that is by no means um, universal, but great swathes of the planet have been pursuing that for a long time and increasing numbers of people, even in the teeth of the economic difficulties, we think of you know China and India, increasing numbers of people pursuing consumer culture. And the other one is the banking system, which you basically say is positively vampiric. And the, these two working together, it seems to be like a slash and burn approach to to the biosphere, to the resources on the earth. And it's almost like, you know, burn the world isn't enough. You then have to burn the ashes. Yeah. Well, the thing about the Watiko virus, I mean, it's a self-consuming, it's an operating system that destroys everything under its domain and ultimately including even itself, you know? And um, so the thing about like, yeah, we live, at least in America, there is this consumer society where we're just always, you know, the, the appetite for endless consumption it's just endlessly, you know, inflamed over and over. We just want more and more and we're never satiated. And that's that's a perfect image for Watiko. One of the indigenous images for Watiko is like this kind of this monster who, you know, as he eats people, his stomach will grow in proportion to the person he just ate, which is symbolizing that he can never be satiated. He can never be fulfilled. And that's that, you know, that insatiable greed of that always grasping and always wanting more. You see, and the thing is, it's interesting when you really get down to when I talk about this in the book, because keep in mind, in the book, I am just in as many ways as I can imagine. I'm trying to shed light on the nature of evil and what is the root of it and, um, and how it manifests in our psyche, how it manifests in the world, how the two are like, you know, actually informing each other and not separate. And I point out that the real source, the real root of evil is ultimately our own clinging and like the part of us that grasps onto an imaginary self as that we think of ourselves as an entity, as a reference point, and we then protect that reference point. And that's, in a sense, that's the core illusion, that's the core process that then over the multi-dimensions of our being will just elaborate itself and play itself out and, and will actually manifest as evil in the world. Yeah, that's important, the idea of our viewing ourselves as separate. And of course, what some of the ideas we were referring to earlier coming from the realm of quantum physics emphasizes the interconnected nature of matter, reality, energy, everything from the, you know, the quantum, the smallest level right up to the macro world that uh, that we you know think we live in all the time but we don't see the connections you know if you and i are in the same room we don't necessarily feel like we're made of exactly the same stuff but we are you know the table the floor other people the building we're in everything it's it's all the, basically the same stuff yeah and that's what i was meaning when i was saying before that that encoded in the evil of watiko is actually this blessing because when you really go into you know well, the whole phenomena of Watiko and you realize, oh my God, it's informing the totalitarian psychosis that's playing out, similar to a dream, when we're unconscious of a part of ourselves, the dream compensates. You know, if we're one-sided, it'll show us the other side. So when we're not in touch with our own power, with our own authority, then the, the dream, the seemingly outside dream will pick up the, that authority 
for us in a way that's not serving us. But our true power is when we connect with the true self, which is actually interconnected and interdependent with other beings. So that's to step out of or to snap out of the spell of the separate self and to recognize the truth of our situation that, you know, we're actually that we don't ex I don't exist separate from you but i exist you and i exist actually we're you know in in relationship so i can't separate out ultimately who i am not only relative to you but to all beings and you don't exist as an isolated entity separate from other beings and there's no fixed reference point anywhere we all exist in this interconnected deeper web of relatedness and the energetic expression of that is compassion and that's why in the book i talk about that Compassion is the Watiko dissolver par excellence, okay? But the thing about compassion, people sometimes have this simplistic idea of, oh, it's all smiley face and patting each other on the back, and some wisdom traditions call that's idiot compassion. Sometimes compassion is fierce, and sometimes we have to step into setting a boundary and being some form of a warrior as the, the deepest expression of compassion. That's why in Tibetan Buddhism, they'll have these wrathful deities that look like demons, but they're actually the root, the source of them is the incredible, this deep sense of compassion. But sometimes you'll have to manifest that energy as a way of, in a sense, protecting or, you know, taking care of what's holy, what, you know, which is the self, which is us and life and all of this well that's the sort of compassion that you would uh makes you think of the the christ figure you know whether um he ever ex existed as a you know a human being or not certainly the actions and way of living attributed to christ uh, fits exactly with that yeah no that's totally true and you think about the one time in the in the bible that christ supposedly got angry is when he went into the temple and threw out the money changers you know, and I think that's really symbolic of, um, you know, because in the book I talk about that, um, you know, if you want to understand Watiko, one, it, it operates, you know, in an individual, it operates in relationships, in a family system, in a culture, in groups, you know, any sort of system. And I was contemplating how it operates, you know, if you study the financial system, you can really see how the Watiko bugs, how it, you know, whose origin is the human psyche, how it informs the system in an aberrant way to, to just create incredible, like, just destruction. And that's just being played out for anybody who has eyes to see in the global financial system, which is like, you know, if you want to understand Watiko, what it looks like, just, just really contemplate the global financial system. Uh, this separateness that we're discussing, I mean, this is basically... Uh, another word for it is the ego, really, and uh, a lot of people think that ego means, oh, well, you know, Tom Cruise has got a big ego or whatever it happens to be, you know, some Hollywood or a music star. Um, but we, that's, there's more to it than that, and I think that, that concept has a role in all of this as well. Yeah, but the thing I just want to say, I mean, you know, because the ego has a bad, a bad rap in the sense, in, you know, it actually is part of like evolution for us to develop a particular ego or sense of self so we can relate to the deeper transpersonal archetypal you know sort of energies and because if we didn't have an ego we would just be overwhelmed but it's ultimately not who we are so we have to it's sort of like a vehicle to get to a certain point and as we strengthen our sense of self and ego then we can actually see through it or step out of it and you know and if, from the Buddhist point of view, to see through, see it as like an illusion, and and yeah, that's all true. But one of the mistakes, you see. So the thing is, the ego. In my book on Bush, I called what he go malignant egophrenia, me disease, me disease. It's a misidentification of who we're imagining we are. If we identify with the ego, then it becomes, you know, sort of this corrupted entity that becomes the doorway for Watiko to play itself out through us. But it serves like actually a beneficial function, but at a certain point we do, it's demanded of us that we you know, see through it and actually connect with the deeper part of us that is interconnected with, with the whole. And this idea of facing the darkness uh, in ourselves, and of course which manifested at the, at the outer level, this is something that c can actually be empowering because just not facing it pretending it's not there, it's certainly not going to go away, quite the opposite. And 
I think for a lot of people, it still can be a struggle if they have a, well, how can I put it? I'll relate it personally that I, I'm able to acknowledge to myself now that I don't know how it happens or why it happens and it doesn't happen very often. But in the past and occasionally a, a, a really dark thought will appear in my mind and rather than dismiss it, now I try and sit with it and, you know, contemplate it if necessary. And usually that, that really helps because then it, it realize that it isn't you and that you're not going to act it out. You never would, but it's there. You acknowledge that there's an aspect to your psyche that, that sometimes produces things like that. Yeah, no, that's really, really true. And that brings me to a, like a really important point because um, there are so many people I know who are really good people, well-intentioned. They're like these new age spiritual people. And um, like, for example, the big new age bookstore in the town I live in, they won't even carry my book. I mean, they don't even want to allow my book in their store because they're like a perfect prototype of what I'm talking about. They're overly identified with the light. They don't want to even give any attention to evil in their mind. They they don't want to focus on it at all, but they don't realize because they're actually having an avoidance of evil, they're feeding it. And so, and I talk, I literally talk about this, this situation in my book because I point out, I go, yeah, you know, we don't want to become overly sort of like have a fascination with evil because that feeds it, but we don't want to just look away from it that's the that's like that being blind the psychic you know sort of form of like blindness that i was talking about before and having an avoidance of evil that also feeds it but what we can do and what we're demanded to do is to see it and then being sovereign beings we then have a choice of where we actually invest our attention and when we see it and we see how it operates and we see how it operates inside of our mind because keep in mind that the this darkness it doesn't exist by virtue of something it exists by the lack of virtue of a, of an unexamined mind okay and then once we see it we can then choose how do we want to invest our attention oh now i see the darkness now i can invest my attention in creating the world i want to live in that's the choice that's offered to us. But people who just are like overly identified with, no, I don't want to at all even talk about evil or because even the mention of the word evil, it just triggers people. It's really interesting. But people who just like, oh, I don't want to talk about it or think about it or whatever, they're unwittingly by them having that stance. They're being the instruments for evil. Yeah, because, I mean, that sort of brings us back to what we were saying at the start. I mean, you can call it what you like, but what do you call it when you see something that is evil? I mean, you can scratch around and get some other words for it, you know, put evil into the source or whatever, but it doesn't change what happened. No, and that's why, I mean, it's incredibly, that's an example of that. It's incredibly important to call something by its right name. And the thing which I find interesting is just, you know, here I've written a book about evil and evil is actually in the subtitle of my book. And it's such a charged thing. Just mentioning the word can trigger so many people. And not only that, just even mentioning the word, it can actually, in a subtle way, invoke that very quality into the field. But it's like, and I talk about this in the book, it's like we have to be like these homeopaths in the sense to find the cure, we have to take in a little bit of the, of the pathogen in order to to stimulate in a way the the immunization within ourselves to find out how to cure it you know and one of the immunizations is when we realize that any of us at any moment to the extent that we're not fully and utterly awake and who among us can say that um that to the extent that we're not fully enlightened any of us at any moment can potentially fall into our unconscious and fall prey to what you go, even with the best of intentions, and act it out. And when you see that, that's that's like this this a uh, psychic like sort of like uh, an immunization against the Watiko virus because that cultivates a sense of like humbleness and realizing, oh wow, you know, I um, I'm just a human being, you know, I'm with my own unconscious, with my own shadow. That's the opposite of the arrogance that a lot of people can have which immediately makes them, you know, sort of a conduit for Watiko to come through them. What do you think the role of art or creativity might be in all of this? Um, because you made the point basically that we're all kind of naturally artists, uh, whatever we, you know, because art can be take many forms and we all have a sort of inherent 
creativity and it seems that there's certain things that we can express through art and other forms of creativity that really transcend words and really have a deeper um, understanding of representation of archetypes and I've certainly had conversations with uh, colleagues regarding modern art and conceptual art and how that's corrupting and uh, you know to look at an unmade bed or uh, you know a jar of urine or uh, you know a wall with feces on it or an aborted fetus and being told that this is art and it seems to repel our senses and uh, but they believe that there was a role in that there's basically like a psychopathic manifestation yeah well i mean in my book i talk i continually talk about the profound importance of art as healing watiko because um you know the just the experience of any of us tapping into the creative spirit and it's like you can think of it like there's a higher dimension of our being and when we actually can access that and then give shape and form to that higher dimension in a way that's communicable to other people that can actually activate and maybe activate their unconscious um, then that it's almost like that energy that's imbued in the work of art. And keep in mind, I'm not even necessarily even talking about just being, you know, doing drawings or painting or, you know, because that is a really flatland idea of what art is. I'm coming from the point of view that we're all artists and we're these, that this is a dream and we're dreamers and artists and our canvas is this, this universe. And so from that point of view, whenever any of us, actually creatively give shape and form to that higher dimension of our being to what we're experiencing and are able to creatively express it by us doing that our expression whatever the form that takes whether it's just verbal in this moment or dancing or just the way we carry ourselves that actually is embodying a particular vibration or energy that gives other people that in a way in a viral way transmits that same permission or gift to other people and because the thing about Watiko is that it can only really propagate itself in a world where people are not in touch with their true voice now it's interesting when you contemplate you know the true voice or, or, or you know what is that and you contemplate the creative spirit well the creative spirit and the word the voice etymologically it's tra it's traced back to the word daimon and the daimon is the guiding spirit or the inner voice, okay? And when you trace it back, the etymology of the word, daimon comes from the word genius or genie or jinn in the Sufi tradition. And, or, you know, like um, Dream of Genie, the old TV show. And so when you, the idea being that when you follow your daimon, your inner voice, your guiding spirit, you'll find your, your genius, you'll find your calling you'll find your inner voice you'll be able to creatively express yourself you'll find your vocation all of those are etymologically associated with each other and and then it'll actually cure your suffering as you have found your what you're here to do but and here's the rub if you don't honor that daimon then it turns negative and becomes a demon Okay, and so and that demon, that's Watiko. So that's why Watiko can't flourish in a world where people are really connected with their genius, with their daimon, with their guiding spirit, with their voice, with their vocation. And that's why it's profoundly important for us as these multidimensional artists to, to really express what's true for us. And that actually, you know, I had written an article a number of years ago. It was called The Artist as the Healer of the World. It's on my website. And, um, and that's the whole idea. So it's really the figure of the artist, of the creative artist, that's actually going to be healing this world and healing Watiko. And if we take our individual inner genius, our creative uh, calling, our vocation, whatever term you wish to use, as the work that needs to be done, the work that must be done, we have no choice. One of the problems um, or situations, let's be more positive, that we're faced with these days is in our consumer societies that where most people are living to work, um, quite honest, getting harder even to do that. And even if they're out of work, then they're faced with other challenges. And this makes it more difficult. We're increasingly focused on survival and the idea of following your you know, the inner creative voice 
um, for a lot of people seems like an impossible dream. And then those dissenters, whether they be activists or whether they just be people who are quietly following their own creative path, not only is it made difficult for them, but if they do make a difference, and we see this happening a lot, dissenters, we call them that, they're made examples of, you know, the hammer of the system comes down very hard on them so that the rest of us look and go, oh, no, no, I don't want any of that. Yeah, no, that's really true. And that, I mean, that's what in a way happened to me when I, in the early 80s, had a, you know, this huge spiritual awakening and I was realizing, oh, my God, we're having a mass share dream and stuff began happening in my life that was physically that was impossible to happen in this dimension that could only happen in dreams. And I was so, you know, I, I was in my mid twenties. I, I hadn't integrated it. Um, you know, I mean, there was no way I could have, it was going to take a long, you know, take a little while or a long time to integrate, but I was just in my enthusiasm, just sharing it because it was good. The good, it, it was the good news. I wanted to share it with other people, but I so freaked people out and particularly the authorities, the, my parents, the psychiatric system, that I got, you know, I got shut down. And, and yeah, so I, I totally know of what you speak. And, you know, and that's one of the tragic um, sort of like elements of our culture is that it's so easy to get trapped into that world of, you know, being part of like the rat race and having to make a living and all of that. Um, because what I'm talking about is that the profound importance, because when we were just talking about the artist and creativity, it's pointing at the profound importance of the creative imagination. That our imagination, people can easily think of it of, oh, you know, it's just an illusion. But no, I'm not saying that it's it's an imaginary thing. The imagination is the part of us that interfaces with God in a way. And it's the foundation, moment by moment, we're actually cre co-creating our experience with the universe and the faculty the faculty through which we do that is the creative imagination and the thing which is really important is how um, helpful it can be when we connect with other people who are also connecting with their you know creative spirit with their artistic nature with their creative imagination with the part of them that's awakening and it's what I call we can then conspire to co-inspire we can activate the collective genius in all of us and it's the real Sangha of the Buddha, the community of awakening beings, which interestingly is my, that's my favorite translation of Bodhisattva, of being in the process of awakening. And that creates a particular contagious non-local field when you, because it's really, you know, the, the Buddha himself said it's really important who you hang out with. He basically was saying, don't hang out with fools. When you hang out with people who are asleep, you know, when who are just acting out their woundedness all the time unconsciously, it creates a field where you're just going to fall back to sleep even more. But when you hang out with people who are actually inspired and who are tapping into the deeper creative, you know, sort of foundational source of who we are, that becomes a contagious energy that then will just endlessly, you know, will increase our own inspiration and creativity. And that's why it's profoundly important for, for those of us who are awakening, and there are more and more of us around the planet who are, to connect with each other and come together in the spirit of, if I help you awaken and I help you to heal, it helps me because we're not separate, okay? And that then becomes the vehicle for stepping out of our separate self, which is the very vehicle through which Watiko incarnates. So that actually helps to dispel Watiko even more. Well, Paul, as we begin to wind things up for today, as we're being called uh, ever more urgently to awaken to this collective dream, um, towards the end of the book, you address um, what you call the curse of pessimism. And we do seem to be suffering from terrible existential angst at the minute, sort of postmodern pessimism that's, that's very pervasive. But you also speak of the, uh, perhaps not a curse, but certainly the dangers of, um, of undue optimism. And it's trying to get a balance between those as we try and move forward. That's important to understand because, you know, we have all the evidence that we need to hold a pessimistic point of view. And when we do that, when we view our world through a pessimistic filter, then we're actually energetically, we're, we're investing in the pessimistic world that we're like actually reacting to. And, you know, even more increasing its manifestation, which will be justification for our for us to even hold a more pessimistic point of view. So in a way we're complicit and it becomes a feedback loop of our own making. 
and and that's you know a perfect well why I even wrote that section in the book is to give an example of how the Watiko bug it will plug into our mind in a way through our unconscious and seemingly provide us with all the evidence we need because remember when we're in a dream and we hold a viewpoint in a dream the dream being nothing other than our own mind provides all the evidence to confirm our viewpoint and then we become entranced because the Watiko bug it basically see where these geniuses think about I was just talking about the daimon which is etymologically having to do with genius and but what Hiko actually plugs into our genius of being co-creators of this universe in a, in such a way that it boomerangs against us and instead of serving us and creating you know this beautiful world we're actually destroying ourselves okay so and then i also say but people who are overly optimistic going oh god's going to come down on his white china's big chariot and the messiah's going to come and heal us that's as much of a self-deception as being overly pessimistic in the sense that that can really, you know, sever us from our own responsibility that, you know, well, wait a second, we are the Messiah. That's who, when you wake up in a dream, you discover that's who we are, which is from the psychological point of view, that's the coming of the self. And when more and more of us connect who are having that realization, that we are the Messiah, then we can change the dream. We can change this universe. And this isn't some sort of like this new agey philosophy, this woo-woo idea. This is what's actually being offered to us. This is what's being shown to us by Watiko. This is we're participating in our own evolution and everything depends if we have the recognition of what's being revealed to us by the insanity of what's playing out in the world or if we don't recognize it just like when you have a recurring dream it continually amps up more and more and more and more amplified version you know until we finally get the message okay so that's why in the book I'm really trying to illuminate wow there's actually this hidden encoded message in this play of evil that's playing out that actually can help us and actually is waking us up but only if we really see what it's showing us we are the ones we've been waiting for. Exactly, exactly. Well, Paul, that was a wonderful discussion. And uh, before we round off, perhaps you could uh, share with folks a bit of information about your work. Uh, your books are widely available from the usual outlets, um, either side of the pond, globally, I should imagine. Uh, perhaps you'd like to say a word about your website and uh, just anything else that you'd like to share, really. Sure. And um, and the thing is, um, if you want to go to my website, you can get the book there. You know, I sell um, autograph copies and I pay for shipping. And um, the address is Awaken in the Dream. So that's A-W-A-K-E-N in the dream dot com. And um, not only can you get my book there, but there's like this video. I just did a, this the book release and there's a bunch of audio of me being interviewed. And um, there's also a ton of articles, all for free, all about this stuff, because um, you know this is something I've been contemplating for <laughs> for you know, 30 years or more, and I just want to get this information out. And um, and then you can contact me through the website. You can just send me an email right from the website, and um, that's really it. Excellent. Well, Paul Levy, thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Yeah, it's, to it's totally my pleasure. I just want to thank you. Well, that's it for another time. As ever, I very much hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, I'd urge you to check out the website, which is legalizefreedom.com, legalize-freedom.com, and there you'll find an archive of shows on many equally fascinating topics. I'd also urge you to check out both of Paul's books, as the implications in them are extremely profound. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com.